0: Hello, this is Brad Schwartz, professor and chairman of Southern Illinois University School of Medicine. On behalf of Richard Wolf Medical, the Endourological Society, and the Journal of Endourology, I would like to welcome you to the latest release in our podcast series. Each month, we will be presenting a current events topic of interest to our listeners. Hello and welcome. to uh, This broadcast, I'm happy to introduce Dr. Joe Chin, Professor Emeritus of Surgery and Oncology at the Western University in London, Ontario, Canada, and Dr. John Feinberg, Assistant Attending Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, Department of Surgery, Division of Urology, New York, New York. We're going to be discussing focal therapy, new kids on the block, and specifically discussing Tulsa Pro and electroporation. Uh, Joe and John, uh, we really uh, are excited to have you here, and thank you very much for your time. And um, we uh, and welcome to the show.
1: Thank you. Good morning, Brad. Thanks for having us.
0: So, uh, Joe, let's, let's um, start with Tulsa Pro. Um, just explain to the audience what is it. It's relatively new. I think most people have not necessarily had it in uh, their everyday grammar and and uh, vocabulary. Um, so, tell great. us what it is and what some of the applications are and, and kind of where we're going with this thing. Okay, great. Thanks, Fred. Uh, so, um, this
2: would be like a two-minute uh, summary on 20-some uh, years of experience and uh, of, and research by some very smart physicists and engineers and and computer scientists. Uh, I, I don't take any credit for it. I only participated in the initial trials and subsequent uh, clinical trials. but. Uh, So this is a minimally invasive MR-guided ablative technology. (laughs) TALSA stands for uh, transurethral ultrasound ablation. Uh, So the entire procedure is conducted within a 3T magnet, uh, an MRI unit, with the patient under general anesthesia because he needs to be perfectly uh, still. Uh, An ultrasound urethral applicator, uh, which is is resembling really like a 19 French uh, rigid cystic coat, uh, and it incorporates ten independent ultrasound transducers, uh, each capable of imaging and also emitting a blade of energy. Like these uh, ten little things are built in near the tip of the cystoscope, and that's positioned right across the prosthetic urethra, aimed at the prostate. the The instrument can uh, is then robotically rotated uh, up to 360 degrees, and then clockwise and anti-clockwise. And uh, and and it directs the high intensity ultrasound energy directly into the prostate tissue. So the treatment is called a transurethral procedure, basically. So TALSA uh, often gets confused with HIFU because of the both use ultrasound as the energy source. The key differences are that tulsa's energy emanates from the urethra, as I indicated, going outwards into the prostate, whereas for HIFU. The energy, of course, comes from the rectum. Uh, Also, image guidance is different because uh, uh, TALSA uses MR, whereas uh, HIFU uses uh, ultrasound for imaging. And then the uh, ablative energy that comes out from TALSA is a continuous plane, so it feels like a a sweeping uh, fan-like configuration around the prostate, whereas HIFU uh, creates multiple discrete lesions that uh, shoots out from from the rectum. So the in uh, in their uh, technical speak, <laughs> the technology uses a so-called closed loop control system with real time thermal mapping to determine the energy being delivered uh, to a particular area of interest. So it's, it's real time uh, controlled uh, by the by the physician. So, so, back to the ten trans uh, transducers in the instrument, uh, each corresponds to a five millimeter MRI slice. So the urologist and the radiologist usually we work together, uh, sitting side by side in a control panel next to the, the MR, uh the magnet itself. We map out the prostate boundary of each slice and the, and then and the energy uh, is then delivered as as we desire. Uh, the the ten transducers can be controlled individually, so that for a shorter gland, for example, we may only activate uh, eight of the ten transducers and, and leave out the the end ones, whereas a longer gland we might use all ten. So there are different degrees of freedom there. Uh, target temperature is usually is, is adjustable. Uh, usually set at 55 to 57 degrees at the periphery of the of the of the boundary of the prostate, of course. Right at the source, which is the middle part of the, uh, of the prostate and near the urethra is much higher. And this is all, of course, designed to attain lethality to, uh, to epithelial cells. So in summary, Telstra is a transurethral ultras- uh, ultrasound ablative treatment tailored to patient-specific anatomy and pathology uh, with the MR as a, as a key component for both planning, uh, for monitoring and also for treatment control um so Joe, guess, let me just
0: ha- let me interrupt just real quick okay. so I, I have two quick questions that might kind of immediately sure. come to mind in your description um you know that the the prostate is not a perfect sphere and the right. urethra doesn't always come at the true epicenter of that sphere um, I, you can control the length i definitely appreciate that because you can just kind of turn on and off the different uh sensors of the ultrasound making it shorter or longer you control the depth with just um, some kind of uh, variable uh, uh, variable energy delivery. How do you control the depth of the delivery? Uh, of this? That's
2: an excellent excellent question. I, I didn't elaborate yeah. on that. And with each slice of the ten MR images, of course, near the apex and near the bladder and neck is a smaller circle, like if you just draw a circle, whereas uh, mid gland is much bigger. So so where we contour is how it's uh will deliver the energy so mid gland obviously it it literally shoots out more energy and shoots out further than than uh, at the apex uh, near the apex or at the neck and that's where the um, uh, focal therapy comes in as well You, you we can control it and we control um for example near the neurovascular bundle we can um uh, contour around. Uh, it's not just transverse, but also we, we do a sagittal and a coronal uh, uh, c- contouring as well. So all all three dimensions are being uh, controlled by the physician. So so that's exactly uh, your point. I think is that it 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 does perfectly or almost perfectly conforms to the to the shape of the prostate, or it can conform. And uh, as we we talk later, we will talk about focal therapy, and then we can talk about how we conform to just the side. You know, if there's a bulging tumor on one side, we we would go a little bit further and even spare the other side completely. For example, like a hemiablation.
0: So. And the and the MRI just gives you that element of precision. I I presume it's, it's more precise yeah, than ultrasound is. Right. So the MRI is both for
2: the. Uh, for imaging as as well as uh, for thermometry, the MR thermometry there's instant feedback as to the uh, the temperature, uh, how high we want it. If it's, if it's too high, if it's heat, heating up too much, then it will automatically shut off uh, until it cools down a bit. In in certain elements, so so it's, it's very uh, it's very interactive, and at the same time, it's also uh, robotically controlled. So it's uh, so it's a very complex procedure, but uh, it, it's and in fact quite user friendly. Even I, am not very computer savvy, or, or uh, can can manage it. Uh, you know, we used to do it with a radiologist.
0: Okay, so uh, we'll get to some of the indications and, and things like that. Let's uh, let's not leave uh, John out of some of this discussion. John, sure. you're going to talk a little bit about electroporation. Um, let's give uh, kind of the comparable introduction and maybe some of the the, the technical aspects that uh, joe gave maybe tell us what it is and kind of how what are some of its applications
1: fantastic well thanks again brad for having us on the pot or having us on the podcast very excited to talk about focal therapy specifically ire or irreversible electroporation today I think sort of understanding why uh, IRE, uh, which is what I'll sort of refer to it casually as, it stands for irreversible electroporation. So. IRE comes into the focal therapy landscape uh, after many of the existing technologies have already been commonplace. So we have to remember that the older technologies in focal therapy, where again, we're using energy to just treat part of the prostate gland where the clinically significant cancer is, we're going to leave most of the normal prostate alone. And that's sort of the promise of focal therapy is adequate cancer control have done correctly while minimizing side effects like urinary incontinence and erectile dysfunction. So that's sort of the backdrop of what focal therapy is in a very succinct nutshell. And historically, we've used energies like HIFU, as uh, Joe mentioned, and cryo. HIFU heats using high-intensity focused ultrasound, basically pinpointing ultrasound to generate heat similar to how those uh, uh, obnoxious kids in your childhood would use a, a magnifying glass to kill an ant on the sidewalk on a sunny day, right? By focusing energy, we can build temperature, and temperature kills mm-hmm. cells. So foo heats, cryoablation, which is done transperineally with needles, uses argon gas to freeze, and those temperatures get very cold. Minus 40 degrees is sort of the goal for thermal destruction of, pro- of cancer cells or any kind of uh, uh, tissue cells. So, you know, thermal energies really work well to kill but have limitations, and so we know that thermal energy can create a little bit more collateral damage outside of the prostate glands towards the neurovascular bundles or the apex, the external sphincter. It can cause a little bit more scar tissue if you need to end up doing a radical prostatectomy on these men down the road. So there is enthusiasm for an athermal modality that would result in adequate cellular destruction that maybe doesn't cause those same sort of outside of the prostate issues as the, more, as the thermal energies do. So there's a few energies in this athermal space. Today, obviously, we're here to talk about IRE. IRE uses electricity or electric pulses between electrodes to create pores and cell membranes that leads to apoptosis and cell death. These electrodes during an IRE focal therapy procedure are placed transperineally under ultrasound guidance. So it's not in bore like the Tulsa is. In bore obviously has a lot of sort of strengths, some downsides too. So it is sort of nice to have a procedure that you can do under ultrasound guidance uh, in an operating room. And the whole idea of IRE is to generate enough energy using electricity to lead to cellular destruction. Now, electroporation can be either reversible or irreversible. Reversible electroporation was invented many years ago, basically passing electricity to cause pores in cell membranes, and then using different types of Uh, treatments as a result of that. So there's electrochemotherapy or electroimmunotherapy where transiently, while the cell membrane is porous, you can sort of sneak drugs or immunotherapies into cells. That's sort of one theoretical benefit of reversible electroporation. But if the energy or the voltage is high enough and the duration of the electric pulse is long enough, the cells are irreversibly damaged. They cannot repair the cell membranes, and those cells are ultimately going to die. Now, the benefits of the irreversible uh, uh, aspect of uh, IRE are that you can really guarantee cellular destruction within the boundaries you set using your electrodes. So originally, there were a few studies on IRE because it's been used In the prostate, but longer actually, it's been used in the liver and the pancreas for ablation of pancreatic uh, and and, uh, hepatic malignancies. The idea is basically that when we deliver the electricity between the electrodes, you kill everything in between those electrodes with a five millimeter margin around them. And the treat and resect studies that were done in in Europe uh, about 10, 20 years ago, show really nice delineation between a hundred percent cell death in between the electrodes, a few cells in, on the in-between between dead and alive, and then normal healthy tissue that was unaffected by the ablation. When you use other modalities, like the thermal modalities, that gradient between dead and alive mm-hmm. tends to be a little bit longer than it is with the electricity. Maybe it has to do with mechanism of cellular death. Maybe it has to do with the thermal spread when you use heat or cold, sort of it's very cold and a little bit cold and not so cold. And those a little bit cold cells can sort of have reversible or sort of funny looking changes in them. But IRE is very promising because of the athermal nature. The other last thing that I will say about it that uh, uh, is one of the benefits of it, and the reason they use it in the liver and the pancreas, is that for some reason it doesn't treat through tubular structures. And in the prostate, that's the urethra. Basically, because of the electricity doesn't go necessarily through the urethra, and it has more to do with sort of the fibroblast layer of cells that surround the urethra, Those cells are very resistant to electrical cell death, similar to the bile ducts or the hepatic arteries and veins in the liver. So those structures, while surrounding tissue is all destroyed during an IRE, the tubular structure itself is left unharmed. So you could theoretically use IRE to treat a tumor that is very periurethral. Some doctors even use it all the way across the urethra. They will encompass the entire urethra with IRE. So it sort of has some promise in those sort of tougher to treat tumors, the far apex, periurethral structures, that sometimes the thermal energies like cryo or HIFU are a little bit sort of trickier to treat.
0: Okay, awesome, great, great, uh, great discussions um so joe what um I, I think you guys just completed a fairly large uh, multi-center global trial or that's been uh, uh, somewhat recently um where does this modality fit in kind of i can't say everyday use because not every urologist has you know un- unvetted access to an mri and and radiology and the technology i would presume is a little uh, you know, it, it's it's a capital expense for a hospital and such. But where where does it fit in the treatment paradigm for prostate cancer? Well,
2: that's right, uh, Brad. Yeah, it's one of the uh, key components is the MRI unit, and not every clinic or hospital has as a disposable MRI unit that you can just access uh, for that. So the, the trial you're referring to is a so-called TAC trial. It was 115 patients uh, across three continents, so 13 sites that included uh, other um, investigators, including Lord Klotz and um, Dave Penson and Scott Ackner and uh, Christian, Christian Pavlich and a few others. I'm sorry, I left out a few names, but... Um, <clears throat> Uh, basically the that was whole gland uh, treating the whole prostate Mm -hmm. as opposed to focal and actually I had already done a a 30 uh, patient uh, phase one uh, trial with a German group Uh, again it was whole gland but that was more just safety and feasibility but this was uh, uh, phase two basically and it showed uh, essentially uh, very good functional outcome, and in terms of oncologic outcome, the about 21% uh, 21% exactly of patients uh, subsequently had to go on to uh, uh, other forms of uh, salvage therapies. And this is up to five-year follow-up for this group. Now, uh the, as mentioned, functional outcome and uh, pat-free and uh, uh, leak-free continents are like 98 96 percent or so, and uh, ED uh, the patients who had erectile, good erectile function before, eventually up to five years, is about eighty uh, percent. So, so yeah, so it's it's shown as efficacy to some degree, and we're actually going on to a new trial, a uh, randomized trial comparing. Uh, Tulsa with uh, radical prostatectomy, uh, two to one, randomized two to one, so that uh, two Tulsa's versus one RP, which could be robotic or open or whatever. but uh, And that's ongoing right now with uh, 201 patients, again, across uh, uh, about 10 sites in uh, North America for oh. this. So, the, uh, so this is a whole gland, but uh, in terms of uh, lots of other people have already started doing partial gland hemiablation. And the hemi could be right versus left versus uh, anterior versus uh, posterior portion of the gland or so-called segmental and only treat part of the prostate. You know, of course, the, these would be kind of outside of trials at the moment, uh, um, but uh, people are doing that notably in Germany and at the ALTA clinic. Uh, I think they presented that at AUA recently. And then also in AEAU. Um, also for even for salvage uh, situations, about uh, twenty or thirty percent of patients have already had radiation failures, and they they were uh, they they were subjected to TELSA as a salvage procedure. So in terms of applications, it's uh, uh, basically localized prostate cancer uh, as long as it's not uh, you know extremely large prostate and uh, <coughs> a uh, very advanced disease that outside of the prostate, especially posteriorly towards the rectum we definitely don't want to do that. Uh, you may, uh, probably you'll be asking about uh, other limitations but I might as well just say that uh, emphasize of course, uh, uh, the main limitations patients can't undergo, uh, those who cannot undergo an MRI uh, safely, be in a MRI unit, for example, a heart valve or vascular coils in the brain and, or some other orthopedic hardware or something. Also, uh, size limit uh, for morbidly obese patients. Um, I can't, can't do it. Severe rectal pathology, that I, I didn't mention it, put in a rectal cooling device as well, but so this device has to be able to be held in the rectum. So if there's severe rectal pathology, strictures and so forth it's not good. And also urethro strictures, of course, but, but the strictures you can deal with um, except the impassable ones. And lastly, very important is the intraprosthetic calcifications. That's um, if there are large calcifications, then the energy that shoots out from the urethra, as you can imagine, it will hit the, the calcifications and basically act as a shield so that the tissue behind the calcifications uh, won't be treated. And more importantly, the energy will then be reflected and bounced back towards the urethra, causing harm to the urethra. So, so the severe calcifications, intraposterior calcifications, would be an exclusionary criterion as well.
0: Okay, um, fantastic. And uh, John, same question. What? Um, uh, it sounds like it's fairly technical. You may not need as as grandiose uh, equipment and supportive kind of technology as as Tulsa Pro, but uh, kind of where are we, and and what is what's the kind of one to three year plan for this technology?
1: Fantastic, and uh, uh, yeah, I think that they're just to take a step back mm-hmm. once again. You know, I think if you are trying to build a focal therapy program, and you really are trying to sort of have strict indications and offer these kind of procedures to men with cancers in various parts of the prostate and various sizes, it's important to have a few energies at your disposal because. I don't think Joe and I are here as salesmen for these companies. I think we're here sort of just give information, and there's not a one-size-fits-all sort of model for one energy that can be used or one machine that can be used for all tumors, in my opinion. I think that what we really want to do is pick an energy that makes sense for the specific patient, for the specific tumor, and the specific part of the prostate, because we know each energy has some strengths and some weaknesses. For example, what Joe mentioned about HIFU and intraprostatic calcifications. That's true for Tulsa. That's true for transrectal HIFU. Calcifications block sound waves. They create shadowing on kidney ultrasounds when you're looking for stones. Anything that blocks sound waves mm-hmm. is going to block high-intensity focused sound waves, and so it's going to sort of protect the cancer and possibly cause harm, as Joe mentioned, from reflection of energy back towards critical structures. Cryoablation similarly has some limitations, particularly as tumors, like Joe mentioned, posteriorly close to the rectum, you get really worried about sort of causing harm and rectal injury when you're doing a cryoablation procedure. IRE is no different. You know, it has some strengths and some weaknesses. Just in terms of where we are in the landscape of IRE in this country, the largest experience in IRE in the world right now comes from australia and there's one guy there his name is phil stricker he's from sydney uh he's a physician there does a lot of prostatectomies and ire procedures and in british journal of urology international earlier this year he published his five year outcomes he treated about 230 patients and most of them were intermediate or high risk disease sort of in total only 7% were low risk 93% were intermediate or high risk similar stats to what Joe said. And I think that you're going to find this across focal therapy studies, because in my opinion, for the appropriately selected patient using of the appropriate energy, the results are all fairly similar between these energy modalities, because we know when used correctly, they kill tissue. So similar to what Joe said, almost all men are continent. 98% of, con- of men in this study were continent using no pads, And About 13% of men who started off with erections on their own lost that ability. So of men who started off with good erections, 87% kept that ability in a median of five years after the procedure. And most of those men, the erections come back between three and six months after the IRE procedure towards their baseline. We have a series that we're publishing right now of IRE of about 20 patients that were treated five years ago. The erection and incontinence statistics are nearly identical. We didn't have any incontinence and about 90% of men got their erections back who started off with good erections and that's an IIEF score over 24, 24 or greater to start off with. Now this big case series is promising But it's not the same as the phase two data we're gonna get from PRESERVE, which similarly to what Joe had mentioned regarding the Tulsa studies, was a multi-center study across the country with a bunch of doctors from a bunch of places treating these men. So it's much more generalizable than this one super expert who's been doing this for the longest time in the world, basically. So I'm excited about the PRESERVE trial results. We'll see what what happens with those. But I think sort of in the context, in the background here of focal therapy, the Tulsa compared to radical prostatectomy trial that Joe mentioned is sort of these are the trials that we need to move the ball forward in our field. Absolutely. We either need randomized controlled trials compared to active surveillance, <laughs> of which in focal therapy, there's only been one. And it was for sort of a PDT therapy, and it was for low risk cancer, it did show benefit when sort of sparing men from radical treatment. But obviously, nowadays, you don't really treat low-risk men with focal therapy, those men would be put on active surveillance at our institution right now. So we're sort of waiting for the bigger, more definitive focal therapy trials. We're excited that these things seem like they're headed down the pipeline, because for those of us who are believers in focal therapy, I think there is a role for focal therapy in the treatment of uh, clinically significant prostate cancer. I think similar to how Wayne Gretzky said, you got to skate to where the puck is going, not to where it is. I'm trying to sort of envision a world where, you know, a lot of three plus fours right now we end up surveying these days at our institution if the genomics are favorable. So what cancers actually need to be treated? And can we save men or spare them sort of the side effects of the radical therapy by doing a more focal treatment to sort of turn their prostate cancer more into a chronic disease than necessarily cure them of cancer forever? I think the sort of subtext to focal therapy becoming a sort of more main stage item, and when you go to the AUA, you see the biggest booths are all these big focal therapy companies right now. The reason is because we have hard work and long-term data from randomized trials like PROTECT showing that men on surveillance for prostate cancer do pretty dang well over time. 15-year data showing really no difference in life expectancy or survival cancer-specific survival between men randomized to surgery, radiation, or observation. So having just spoken to Freddie Hamdi, the principal investigator of that last week, it's sort of his ideas. basically, there's cancers that are non-lethal that we need to just survey. There's cancers that are potentially lethal that we need to treat. And the question is, can those men get a focal therapy now? wait a few years, have another focal therapy treatment, basically kick the can down the road of the radical treatment, as opposed to just upfront start with radical treatment. I think what we are learning is that radical prostatectomy after focal therapy is different than radical prostatectomy before focal therapy. We see higher rates of positive surgical margins, and we see worse erection outcomes in men that have been treated with focal therapy, fail, and then go on to radical prostatectomy. In IRE specifically, There are suggestions that that's not so much the case compared to the thermal energies. And again, this is Dr. Stricker's series from Australia showing comparable outcomes between primary RP compared to IRE fail and then RP. But I think we all sort of know in the background, as surgeons, you don't want to be re oping anybody. You want, particularly for something as delicate as a nerve spare, you want virginal tissue planes. So how IRE, Tulsa other high food devices cryoablation photodynamic therapy you know there's a, a, it seems like every few months we hear of new energies now there's the vapor trial that just started the vapor 2 trial using steam there's aqua ablation trials going on which energy is going to rule the day i think remains to be determined in my opinion, it's good to have a couple of them at your disposal because I think making these decisions on a tumor and patient-specific level are going to be important to make sure that we have standardized outcomes and sort of the best options for our patients moving forward.
0: Wow, you guys—you uh, you certainly are both incredibly passionate about this, and 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 it's it's fun to watch focal therapy kind of um, grow. I. Uh, I I remember doing a lot of cryotherapy for kidney tumors back at the turn of the century, as they say, just 20 years ago. <laughs> uh, and, and I've seen how much that's changed uh, just just in you know 20 years. And to see what you guys are talking about and what what you're working on is really it, it is absolutely astounding to see what's going to happen in the next five to 10 years in this space. It's it has to be uh, immense, and it will grow to a proportion that I'm not sure we can even uh, predict.
1: I I totally agree, Brad. I think that uh, Mm -hmm. right now there's a ton of promise for focal therapy. There's a ton of enthusiasm and a ton of money in the space right now. So we see a lot of these for-profit companies developing new technologies and devices, and we see a lot of urologists. And in the fee-for-service sort of system that American healthcare is born into, you know, a lot of doctors are using a lot of focal therapy right now to treat prostate cancer. I think as you sort of hinted at right there, it's really important to not let Pandora's box get opened too quickly because we know that in the community already, we get a lot of referrals. Patient had cryoablation for one core of Gleason 6 on a standard 12 core trust biopsy. That's not a focal therapy patient. And I think using focal therapy as a means to overtreat prostate cancer again, is a little bit of a problem in our space right now. And I think doctors like Joe and our institution here are working really hard to try and firm up indications for focal therapy. The Focal mm-hmm. Therapy Society and sort of the uh, consensus uh, meetings have published what the true focal therapy sort of candidates are. Uh, that just, I think, uh, again, just a couple weeks ago, there was sort of a consensus meeting and guidelines that were agreed upon. Obviously, guidelines aren't for everybody, guidelines are guidelines, but the important thing is we don't want to see prostate cancer get over-treated again. Focal therapy, while it has fewer side effects than radical treatment, still has side effects, and there are still issues and complications after it. And so I think we really want to use it to treat the cancers that need treating, and we really want to survey cancers that don't. And so oftentimes we sort of refer to focal Mm -hmm. therapy as superactive surveillance. The idea of a focal therapy is not just to treat it and see you later, it's to basically treat the area that needs treatment and survey the patient for the rest of their life. I sort of analogize it to high blood pressure. Just because you're on one medicine for high blood pressure doesn't mean you're cured of high blood pressure. Most men take that pill forever, and most men actually, over the course of five to 10 years, are going to have high blood pressure again and maybe need a second pill. That's the background of how I see focal therapy. We know prostate cancer is multifocal, but we know 90% of men with prostate cancer die of other stuff. So it's really about risk assessment, management strategies over years and decades. And I think that's the landscape that focal therapy is going to really have success. It's not for treating mm-hmm. things that don't need treatment in the first place. So, Jody, yeah, I, you
2: just you to, yeah, I just say want it. to... Just, uh, Second, what uh, John just said, uh, one of my favourite papers, uh, I'm sure John knows, is that uh, European urology was uh, entitled a la carte treatment using different uh, modalities um, for different sizes, different shapes, different locations of prostate cancer, basically invoking all the different technologies that we've mentioned. Uh, and just a couple of very minor points uh, as far as salvage treatment yeah and i agree with john i've actually done several salvage prostatectomies after failed uh uh Talsas and uh and so have a couple of other people in, in europe and you know it's uh, it's doable <laughs> uh, let me just say that but uh, it's 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 not as as much fun and finally just uh as far as active surveillance, you mentioned kind of focal therapy kind of like a hyper uh, active surveillance. I guess some people are kind of making the two kind of and in, into one entity, almost joining force. Uh, active surveillance and focal therapy joining together, and uh, kind of against active uh, radical therapy. So tipping the balance towards more people uh, who would be candidate for just uh, conservative either. Active surveillance alone, or focal therapy, and, and ongoing surveillance, as you mentioned. So, so I, all these technologies, uh, including uh, IRE and TELSA, certainly are are part of the mix. And I, I think the, all this uh, it, that's going on is extremely interesting, and and uh, and the future is very bright in this area.
0: Well, fantastic, guys. Uh, really, I, I look forward to it. You are uh, both leaders in your field, and we look forward to what you're going to bring to uh, our patients uh, and and to our um, profession. So uh, doctors uh, Feinberg and Dr. Uh, Chin, uh, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, and uh, we, we definitely appreciate your time and expertise. Thank you. Thanks very much for having us. On behalf of uh, Richard Wolf Medical, the Journal of Endourology and the Endourological Society, I thank you for listening today and hope you can tune into the next podcast.